I want you to go on a journey with me in your mind. I want you to picture yourself driving through the desert on one of those long roads that you can see forever. You don't see another car on the road anywhere and you're driving along and you pass a little restaurant on the side of the road and you think maybe I should stop there for a little bit but you decide not to. You drive about three, maybe four miles up the road and all of a sudden your tire blows. And you can't keep driving. There's no cars on the road. There's no cell phone signal. You have one choice. Turn around and walk to the restaurant that you now wish you would have stopped at. And as soon as you get out of your car, the heat just takes your breath away. 106, 107 degrees. Bright sun. And you begin to walk and you think, I need to get there. It's not that far. But when you walk a little faster, you get tired very quickly. And you're beginning to wish you had a bottle of water with you because your thirst is beginning to build. You look around and all you see on either direction is just dirt and it's so dry, all you see is those spidery cracks that go out forever. There's not been water there forever. The cacti look like they're all bowed down, dying of thirst. You hear scorpions and nothing else running across the ground and everything is so dry, all you hear is... And you're still walking. And you're getting more thirsty and more thirsty. And you look up and you see the restaurant. It's still a ways away, but you also see all those hazy lines like a mirage. And you're not even sure if it is the restaurant. You're praying that it is, but you're not sure. Everywhere you look, the sun is beating down and you see these mirage lines and you're thirsty. And you keep walking, but you have to walk slower because you're dehydrating and you're, you're getting tired and you're more thirsty yet. Finally, you come up where you can see the restaurant and you know it's real. Your mind's starting to get a little fuzzy because you are very thirsty. And you walk in and the waitress acts like she's seen you before or at least someone like you. And she reaches down and she fills up a big glass of ice water. And it's dripping down the sides, just condensation. And you take that glass of water and you drink it up and your thirst is quenched. You might feel like between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40, you're standing looking at the water. Isaiah 39 has been many hints of Christ, many promises of a remnant, but many, many, many warnings of judgment. And we felt overwhelmed. We have felt overwhelmed. Sometimes we have felt without hope. We felt like we're still walking and thirsting and the water is still in front of us. And now we're at chapter 40 and it's on the table in front of us to to quench that thirst we have for something other than judgment. Well, as much as we might feel that way, think of what Judah felt like. Because they were coming through this season where they were under attack and everything was was crazy for them and and Sennacherib and his army were coming down and they'd taken over almost all of Judah except for Jerusalem and Lachish, but they're, they're about to overtake that. They don't know what's going on, but then they get this taste of refreshment from the Lord as he, on their behalf, slays the army and delivers his people. 
And yet at the same time, you realize the promise of judgment still stands. And you're wondering, did we drink of the water or was it imagination? And if we would walk with Jerusalem and Judah for the next hundred years, 70% of that would have us still wondering whether we ever drank of the goodness of God. Because remember, back in the beginning of Isaiah, we learned that Isaiah prophesied under four kings. Do you remember who they were? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, we've just finished a story about Hezekiah, and he was granted 15 more years of life, remember, last week? But Hezekiah still dies in 687. So when he dies, somewhere between 701, when Sennacherib is turned back by God, and 687, Hezekiah is still writing the rest of Isaiah and preaching the rest of Isaiah. But when he dies, his son Manasseh takes over. Manasseh, 55 years of a wicked evil reign and the people would have been not the glass of water would have been a mirage completely out of their sight Manasseh one of the most if not the most wicked king of Judah and 55 years of reign plus another four wicked kings and one king that that is just a puppet king for Babylon right before during the 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 three phases of them taken into captivity only 31 years of Josiah the child king 8 years old and a wonderful godly king for 31 years the water is coming back in their in their vision they're tasting of it a little bit but then because of the sins of Manasseh according to second kings they will be taken into captivity. Now, Manasseh was a wicked king. It was because of the lack of repentance of the majority of the nation for for a long time. But Manasseh is singled out as the representative of God's people that it's because of his evil deeds that they will be taken into captivity. So by 586, it's destroyed. People are taken into captivity, and now the water is just a memory. It's just a memory. Has God forgotten us? Now, Daniel was someone that we know that lived in captivity most of his life. And he was taken in the first wave. And that captivity that ends up in 586, there are two waves earlier than that. And Daniel is one taken in one of the earlier waves. I want you to turn to Daniel. I know we'll come back to Isaiah, but I want you to turn to Daniel. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So here's a man who has been in captivity all of his life, faithful in captivity. We won't rehearse Daniel's life, but all of a sudden, Jeremiah's prophecy, he reads and it becomes clear that it's 70 years of of punishment in, in captivity and they're coming to the end of that, coming to the end of those 70 years and this joy comes over him, but also a realization and listen to what he does beginning in verse three. 
Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him in prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to Yahweh, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his com- and keep his commandments. You see what he's remembering, don't you? He's remembering the covenant faithfulness of God. He's remembering the glass of ice water, that God is a God who makes and keeps his promises to his people. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Yahweh, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in his laws, which he sent before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his plea for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate." Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is, called by, that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. 
Now that is a prayer that we can just soak in for a while, isn't it? This is a man who has been in captivity over 80 years. All of his adult life he's been in captivity and he realizes that it's about to end and he doesn't just rest on the promise. He knows his covenant gods and there will be blessings for faithfulness, for obedience and curses for disobedience. He's lived his entire life there. So what does he do? We are the sinners. You are the God of mercy. For your name's sake, release us. So all through that captivity, if you want to learn some about it, read the book of Lamentations. Read how horrible it is. So horrible that mothers eat their own children as they're taken into captivity. So the glass of water is far from them. The ice water, they're not even sure if they see it. Now let me tell you, that ice water is always there for us as well. That relief, that comfort, If we are in Christ, we live in that comfort. And the only time we don't receive it is when we walk away and we live for our own glory instead of his, the opposite of what Daniel prayed. So as we come into chapter 40 of Isaiah, we are looking at at a, a breath of fresh air, a glass of ice water after coming out of the desert. The language changes. The vision changes. So in chapter 40, Isaiah is still writing and speaking in his time, the end of the 8th century, the beginning of the 7th century, and he's still speaking to those people. There is comfort to be had for them as well because he may not know everything that's going to happen to them in the next 100 years before the captivity, but God does. But there is also a nod toward those people who are in captivity. This is where it makes some more liberal scholars say that this is a, something written centuries later during or after the captivity and then amended to Isaiah. I, I think it says it's from Isaiah and that's the way we're going to look at this. That this is Isaiah speaking at the end of the seventh, uh, the end of the eighth, beginning of the seventh century and many times he'll, he'll seem like he's addressing only those people coming out of captivity. But many times we have that prophetic vision that we talked about several times in Isaiah. Remember, if you're out on that desert highway again and you go off to the side of the road, if there were telephone poles and you stood right by one telephone pole, you'd just see one pole, right? But if you just stepped out a little bit and looked down, you'd see that they went on forever. And so sometimes in, in prophetic literature and Isaiah 40 and following is going to be this, sometimes we're looking at the first pole, sometimes we're looking at the third pole, Sometimes we're looking at the fifth pole, and sometimes we're looking at the last pole. And in fact, I think we see all of those in the first five verses of Isaiah 40. So we have to have our thinking caps on. We have to take the scriptures to us in context, but we also have to know that in between that fifth pole and the last pole is us. In between the first coming and the second coming of Christ is us, and Isaiah is for us as well. So with all that in our mind, All of that in our mind to feed us and to hopefully encourage us. We need to drink the glass of water, don't you think? Isaiah chapter 40. Stand, if you will. Now, if you were in Sunday school today, you know that we originally were going to try to cover all 11 verses, but I changed my mind on Thursday or Friday. So be that as it may, whether it's a blessing or a curse to you, we'll see. But it's going to be a blessing, I think, to us to be able to cover it more deeply. These are rich verses. Now, I'm going to read from 1 to 11 this morning. We'll cover from 1 through 5, and next week we'll cover from 6 through 11. 
Then we'll have Resurrection Sunday, and the Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, we'll come back to Isaiah 40 in chapter 40, verse 12. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So I've kept the same outline for us. We'll cover the first two um, voices today and the second two voices next week. But in these 11 verses, we observe four voices bringing comforting messages to Yahweh's children in Babylonian captivity. Four voices bringing comforting messages to Yahweh's children in Babylonian captivity. Now, I've already made it clear that I think this is also for the people in Isaiah's day, and it's also pointing us forward to the time of Christ and the time of his return, and therefore it is the time in between the advents where we live. But I put the Babylonian captivity in the outline so we're remembering the focus for us shifts a little bit. It's been clearly in Isaiah's day with nods to the future. Remember, we've seen different passages that talk about Christ and his coming. We've seen different passages that talk about Christ and his second coming and the, the new heaven and new earth. That we've, those have been interwoven in between many more passages of judgment. But we always need to have the Babylonian captivity in our mind so that we recognize what parts of this come forward to us that are going to directly address something a century and a half later after Isaiah's time, even as it still has application for Isaiah's time and for us. So the first voice, the voice of God's messenger speaks tenderly to God's people. Look at verse 1. These two words, comfort, comfort. Now they do strike us here as they should, and if they don't strike you, you're not embedded enough in all of the judgment that's been promised for disobedience. 
for all of a sudden the voice to call and say, comfort my people. Do you hear this? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Do you know how much theology is packed in there? Well, how many times has he talked to his people as that people or this people? Remember? And now here, they're your, God says, they're my people. They're my people now. And not only that, he says very clearly that, they're, that he is their God. That's covenantal language, right? That's a reminder of the promise of the covenant, of this kesed, this covenant faithfulness that God has for his people. And he has it because they are his people and he is their God. And when Isaiah, when Isaiah and his people and when people of all time remember that, then they're walking in that covenant faithfulness because it is their God and they can claim that they are his people. And this is what God says when he says to comfort my people. Now, God is speaking here. It doesn't, it, it doesn't identify him, God says, but it does says, says your God. So we are listening to these, this original voice, this first voice, as God speaking, and immediately the glass of water begins to go down the back of our throat and re- gives us relief and comfort, gives us relief from the judgment. Remember, just a couple of verses earlier, the judgment is that there will be sons of yours, Hezekiah, who are, just, who are given over to the enemy. They will not live. The, the throne of David will seem like it is completely in disarray, but take comfort. And it's God speaking to give them comfort. And he's really meeting comfort. The grammar behind this is an intensive command. Okay, just the grammar intensifies it. And then when we say it twice, it doubly intensifies it. So this this is a strong command that my people should take comfort. And he's giving this command to multiple people because these verbs are plural. So we're not, I'm not sure who all are supposed to hear this, but it's such an intensive command to a group of people because they're plural verbs that I think it's covering all of the messengers of God that take his gospel throughout the world through all time. This is what we are doing when we preach the gospel to each other. We are reminding us to take comfort in God because God has given this plural intensive command specifically to his people in in, uh, that, that are listening to Isaiah, but we'll see very quickly, even though Babylon isn't mentioned until chapter 43, it's for the people that are in Babylon who are in Daniel's spot. The temple is destroyed. There, there is no city. God resides, their God resides in the temple and the temple is gone. So for them, they don't have a temple to worship in, They don't know where God is. And it's been years of this. A generation is growing up. Comfort. Comfort my people. This is what Daniel is praying for in the ninth chapter of Daniel. He's praying for God to come after his people repent so that his recompense comes, that his blessing comes, that his grace comes to them. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. But then, so, so that, is, that is what's going to happen when his messengers speak, but his messengers only speak for whom? Him. They speak for God, right? Comfort, bring them my comfort. But then he tells them how they're to speak. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, speak to their heart. 
Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. It's a term that's used with affection um, in relationships where there's great love. It's a term that's used like when Joseph, um, his brothers come before him and they're fearful that he's going to exact revenge for all their sinfulness. And he says, what? You intended it for evil, but... God intended it for good, and this same word is used that he comforted them at that time. It's the way Boaz talks to Ruth with great encouragement and comfort. So the the tone of the voice is a gentle, tender, comforting, speaking to the heart. It's not just words intended to float around in the air. The words are intended to pierce, to pierce the heart. Now, I'm going to tell you that they're intended to pierce the heart for both conviction and encouragement. Because you can't expect the comfort from God when you're embracing your sin without repentance. You you can't expect that. If you're one here today who has not come to faith in Christ and you want God's comfort, but you don't want to bow before him and repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're not going to receive his comfort. You'll receive his judgment. So today you need to listen to the words that should pierce your heart. But also for us, if we're here as a believer this morning and yet we want to live as if our sin doesn't matter to God, we may be able to claim redemption But he gives us over to discipline often, doesn't he? And we can cry out for comfort all we want if he's giving us the long-suffering to repent, and we're not doing that. So we need to hear the message this morning. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak to their hearts. And this speak tenderly is in the same Hebrew form, so it's an, it's an intense command. It's not repeated, but it's an intense command as well in the way that they are to speak to the people. Well, there's a specific way the voice of God's messenger speaks tenderly to God's people, but he speaks with three specific ways. And you see that in your text. I hope your text says that, that, that in the middle of verse two. It it really gives us a nice little outline, doesn't it? Speak tenderly, comfort them. That's the end result. That's what you're going to do on the the, uh, journey I'm sending you on, you messengers. How do you do it? You speak tenderly, speak to their heart. What do you say? Here's what you say. The first, take comfort that your hard labor is ending. Look at verse two. In the middle, the third Third line of verse 2, if you have yours divided up in poetry, like I think you probably do, that her warfare is ended. So warfare, what are we to think of this? That their warfare is ended. They're, They're in captivity. Those who were in Isaiah's day have been delivered. This is where we go back to understanding the chronology. It's, it, they've been delivered from Sennacherib. So what is their warfare? This word can also mean to... Um, a time of service or a time of work, like in Job chapter 7, verse 1. Has not mankind a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? That's the same word used in the same way I think is intended here, that there is a hard service here that's being talked about. There, there is a time of suffering that's being talked about. And he says that has ended. That's the first thing. So that, those who are, in, in the, the, um, who are deported and are, and are in Babylon, this is the message to them that, it, that when the Lord comes, this is ending. The, the time of your, of your captivity is ending. But it's also for us, is it not? 
God has come. And we're going to see this in just a minute, but there's no way just to parse this out and wait to get to every verse. It all ties together. God has already come in Christ. So our warfare, our, our hard service against sin has ended because if we are in Christ, now we are no longer captive to that sin. Christ has died for it and it does not rule over us anymore. We can volunteer our service to that sin, but it does not control us. We are not of our father Satan any longer if we are a believer. So these are the promises, right? This is what you're speaking. We're going to get to the how. We're going to get to how that happens and, and the surety of it and, and, and other aspects of this. But right now, we need to know the same as the people need to know that their hard service or their warfare, their struggles, and look at the word, is ended. Not even will be, but it is. Secondly, take comfort that your iniquity is pardoned, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, or sin is forgiven. What this language is telling us here is saying um, that her punishment for sin is accepted or satisfactory. That's what's behind the words here, that what has been given is accepted, it's satisfactory to God. In the same way that God said to, to bring certain sacrifices for certain types of sin and bring it in certain ways, and God says that he accepts that, right? That's the way the whole sacrificial system is set up. So that's the idea behind this word iniquity. And so the iniquity is pardoned. Your warfare, your struggle has ended, but your sin is forgiven. Remember what Daniel prayed for? Daniel prayed that they would repent and God would turn away from them because of their repentance and his glory would shine for his purposes and his glory and not theirs. We're going to fill in the blanks for these as we get to the next couple of verses, but look at the third comfort, the third reason there to take comfort. To take comfort that your hard labor is ending, that your iniquity is pardoned, but also take comfort that you've suffered enough for your sin. Look at the... The fifth line there, that, 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 that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Now, here's what we need to not say. We do not need to say that they have suffered in, um, especially the people in captivity, that they've suffered enough. God says, well, that covers your sin. That's not what it's saying. It's saying God is satisfied with the deportation and the time in Babylon that he has sent them to, and it's for his glory that he's now going to release that. So, and here's, here's where I want to be clear on this. If you're outside of Christ this morning, and you think there's a certain amount of righteous, righteousness that you can accomplish on your own that will cover the sins that you have, that you can somehow put them on the scale and you can think, well, the good things, the bad things I've done, they're, they're gonna go this way because, you know, God's a merciful and graceful, grace-filled God. You can never pay for your sin. You, you, you have offended a holy God and can never pay for your sin because nothing that you do is righteous. Even when it's good in the world's eyes, even when you do something according to the scriptures, it does not satisfy God. What God is saying is that he is satisfied because it's his good pleasure to release them from captivity. Now remember, God has promised a remnant over and over in Isaiah, right? Over and over, he's promised that remnant, that there would be a remnant that he would preserve and that they would come. We're meeting that remnant in their ministry here in these next several chapters of Isaiah. And so God is working for his own glory. And he says, take comfort that your hard labor is ending. Take comfort that your iniquity is pardoned. Take comfort that you have suffered enough for your sins. 
So the first voice comes and gives the whole message in this short little terse verse, doesn't it? The first voice comes and says, you can take comfort because God is working, forgiving your sin. He is saying that he is satisfied with everything that you have suffered. And now we need to learn how that satisfaction happens. Does God just wink and it go away? A couple of weeks ago, Isaiah used the language that God put their iniquity behind his back. Is that all he has to do? Oh, this is a good day. I'll just take the iniquity and put it behind my back. Sorry about the sin you committed yesterday and the sin you commit tomorrow, but today's sin, I'll just put it behind my back. Is there more to this? Isaiah's prophecy leads us right into what that more is. The second voice speaks. The voice of a prophet cries out that the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed to all flesh. Look at verse 3. A voice cries. Now, right now, we don't know who that voice is. It's just a voice. This is prophecy. So anyone speaking for the Lord is speaking for him. Anyone that is speaking like this is speaking for the Lord. So a voice cries. We'll fill in the blank of who this is ultimately, but in Isaiah's day, it's a voice, and it's heard by people. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now remember, these people are living in a form of wilderness. Those in the Babylonian captivity, they're, they're in a form of wilderness. They are they're away from uh, Jerusalem, away from the place of worship, away from their God. And throughout Scripture is this wilderness idea. Just think about what we've learned in Isaiah already. The wilderness is, is God's judgment often, right? God says that he is going to come against a city and it's going to be so devastated that animals will come in and they'll feed in the city and humans won't be able to stay there. So turning the cities into a wilderness, um, bringing the mountains low as a, as, a, as a sign and signal for the prideful people that will be brought low, we have seen this kind of language throughout Isaiah. But also throughout the scriptures, the wilderness has different meanings. It, it stands for different things. But we know that the people who are in Captivity, they're, they're suffering from separation. It is a dry time. Some of them can't even see the glass of ice water. Daniel has seen it. He's prayed for his people that they would be able to see what God is doing because he is a covenant faithful God. And he has promised. Remember, for even those prophets that speak after um, the, the, the uh, captivity, they're still reminding them that there will be someone sitting on the throne. And during the captivity, there isn't even a throne for anyone to sit on. And yet that's still the promise, isn't it? The promise is God will place the rightful heir for David's throne on the throne. These promises remain. And reminding the people of these kinds of promises are where, what brings the glass of cold ice water to their, to their vision, where they see where their thirst is quenched. So the picture here is of a returning army who, who their, their general or maybe even their king is coming, and the road needs cleared for the chariots and all of that, so they, they make it flat. It's that kind of a picture, that they move things out of the way so that the, the whole entourage can move through. I'm not saying that this is an entourage here. I'm saying that's the picture of the metaphor, that there is a road that needs cleared. All the obstacles need removed. 
If you've ever driven on a drive through the mountains, you know that there are times that to build that road, they have blasted the mountain, right? Rocks up on the side. You can see they've just blasted a hole in the mountain so that the road didn't go like this. This is that kind of a picture. All the valleys that may get people stuck in the mud at the bottom of it, they're filled up. All the mountains are brought low so that passage can be made. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. So the command is to do that preparing. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We've already seen this metaphor. Remember in chapter 35, the highway of holiness. If you want to be pursuing Christ, we saw Christ as the ultimate fulfillment. If you want to pursue Yahweh, be on his highway, the highway of holiness. So we have that same picture again. Highway is used in several places in Isaiah. And this is the picture that God is about to move. He is about to come. And so the the message is to make everything straight, make everything flat, make the pathway easy. So how does that work? What does that have to do with our sins being forgiven? How how do we fit this in together? Have we just like switched channels here? We're on one channel and all of a sudden, well, we get the good news. Let's see what's on the other channel. Click, make the mountains low and the valleys, build them up and make the straight paths. Or are they connected? Well, we know they're connected. So how are they connected? Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Now, we could go to any of the Gospels. All the Gospel writers include a quote of these verses, either part or all of verse 3 and, and um, 4 and 5. We're going to look at just two of them, but I want to start in Luke chapter 3. Let's just start in, in verse 1, just so, so we get the lead-in of who's involved in this. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Luke. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysinus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So what we know, the person we know is John the Baptist, is the word comes to. In this setting, verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist comes, preparing the way for Jesus by preaching a baptism of repentance. And if we went through and looked at all of this in the Gospels, we'd find out that there's one coming later that will have a baptism of fire. But he's preaching a baptism of repentance. So what is this preaching about repentance called? Look at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now immediately we might want to flip back to Isaiah 40. Is that what that said? Did it say a voice of one crying in the wilderness? Or did it actually say, in the wilderness, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare. That's what Isaiah says, right? There's a voice crying, all this preparation goes on in the wilderness. But the gospels say, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Because they're quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament. And that's what the Greek version of the Old Testament has. And so it's, it gives us even a clearer picture of John coming out of the wilderness, 
The weird guy, dressed weird, eating weird, coming out of the wilderness, and then he's got this message to God's people to repent. What are you telling us to repent for? We have Abraham as our father. So this message is, is, is falling on ears that are unreceptive unless their heart has already been tenderly spoken to. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, says verse 4, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out, of the bab- came out to be baptized him to by him. So this is a group of people that's doing what he wants, right? They're coming to be baptized and look what he says. You brood of vipers. Those aren't nice words, by the way. Just... They're not nice. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what is the bringing down of the mountains and raising up the valleys and making way straight the crooked paths? It's repentance. It's repentance. It's preparing the way to receive Christ in the Gospels. It's repentance. I want you to look at one other place. Turn to Mark. Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1. Mark starts with this. This is, this is how Mark, this is the first bullet that Mark shoots when he uh, writes his gospel. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I bring you to Mark's version because Mark starts his gospel out like that. And there's this wonderful connection between the wilderness here in verse 3, the wilderness mentioned from John baptizing in the wilderness in verse 4, the wilderness in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And in Mark chapter 1, the wilderness here is, it's a place of new beginnings. It's It's a place of recreations and restarts. And we see that theme, Mark Mark will will cover that throughout his gospel, but in chapter 1, it's clear for us. Back in Isaiah chapter 40, turn back there, I think this is the idea here. You've been in captivity, you've been in the wilderness. Everything is sad for you. It's not your home. You have no place to worship. you're, You're in a different culture. 
You're, you're separate from your God. Everything is turned upside down, topsy-turvy. That is the definition of wilderness, of being separated from God. And Isaiah comes and says, prepare the way, because God's about to come. Now, in Isaiah's time, as well as the Babylonian captivity, we're still foreshadowing Christ, right? We've gone from, we've gone from the first telephone pole to the third telephone pole, and we're still foreshadowing Christ. So Isaiah is speaking to the, the 8th, 7th century, into the 8th, beginning of the 7th century. They're hearing this. They're about to walk through the darkness of Manasseh. They need the encouragement. They need the comfort, and they will need it then. But the people in Babylonian captivity need it. And when they're ready to, to be delivered, when, when they come to Daniel's part where he recognizes the captivity is almost over and he prays, what does he pray? He prays that the people would repent. They prepare the way because God is about to come. And we'll see this in Isaiah in not very many chapters that King Cyrus, he gives the command to let the people go and start rebuilding the temple. A whole nother story, but we're going to see the second telephone, the third telephone pole kind of fulfillment. But the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ and his first and second coming. The first coming is where Christ comes and those who repent of their sin, they're the ones who are responding to Christ as John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who comes as the one who prepares the way, telling people how they come to Christ. The first thing we do is repent of our sins. Now, in case that's a new term to you or it doesn't have a a, a meaning enough for you, it means to turn away from your sin. If you're walking due north and there's your sin, you need to turn around and walk due south. But it's not just the turning, but it's the turning away and forsaking of that. It's not turning away and just leaving all that sin and turning south and still thinking about it and wondering where you're going to find the new versions in the south. It's forsaking those sins. Because when you turn in a spiritual sense, you're turning away from sin and toward something, toward someone toward the one whose sandals John the Baptist couldn't untie, toward the one who baptizes with fire. All of that, and you say, Rob, how do you get all that out of Isaiah chapter 40? Are they really seeing that? Well, we don't know if they see it or not, but our scripture interprets scripture, right? And what do the gospels tell us this passage means? The gospels tell us this passage is referring ultimately to John the Baptist and who he speaks about. So we are ones who are blessed to have the New Testament, and the New Testament says this is to fulfill what Isaiah said in chapter 40. So it's a blessing to us. So the the fifth line of fulfillment is Christ himself. When Christ comes as the one who can forgive sins. Remember, sometimes he heals so that the people know, well, which is easier, to heal or to forgive sins? If I can heal, you think I can forgive sins? So he is the one who comes through his person and his work. So when Christ comes, John is the forerunner, but Jesus comes and then he teaches. And he is a teacher like no other teacher. He is a teacher that slays people with the way he teaches. He's not like the other prophets that are there. He's not like the other teachers that are there. And he comes and he heals and he does miracles and he brings people to himself and the disciples and he sends them out and more people come to Christ and he, ends, he comes in his life so that he may die. That's his purpose. He has things to do along the way, but he comes so that he might die so that he can redeem a people for himself. If we are going to be part of those people and live in the midst of that salvation, repentance must mark us. 
So if you are here this morning, and I've already talked to you about, about, about depending on your own righteousness, the, the way that you get to the glory of the Lord being revealed is to repent. It's what Daniel called his people to. It's what John called the, the people from Jerusalem to. It's what I call you to this morning is to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. So the glory of the Lord is revealed to you. And it's revealed in salvation and not in judgment. So this is the cup of cold water for you. I mean, this is the ultimate cup of cold water, the spiritual reality that every cup of cold water points to, and that is salvation from our sins that would separate us from God. That's what's being brought to us here in Isaiah 40. Yes, metaphors and pictorial language, but the New Testament tells us this is what starts it. But between that fifth telephone pole and the last telephone pole, there's a lot of telephone poles. Right? We're one of them. We're living in the midst of that. So it has to mean for us as well, not just coming to Christ in salvation, but living our salvation in light of the gospel. And this is what we remind ourselves all the time, but how easy is it to forget it? We live by the same gospel we're saved by, right? We come to Christ the very first time by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ, and he overwhelms us with his salvation, and now we are his children, we're seated with him in the heavenly places, and we wash our hands and say, great, that's good, I'm going to drink water forever now. And yet God says what? Pick up your cross, that's your life. God says believers are the ones that confess and crucify sins. See, there's not a lost person on the face of the earth that can, that can crucify their sin. I mean, there's not a lost person in the world that can do that. I mean, they can turn away from it, but they do it for their own glory, not for God's. We are the people that do it for God, and we are equipped to do it by the gospel. Remember, we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And, and all of this comes oftentimes just like it did for and it will for the people in Jerusalem who are about to go under Manasseh's reign, just like it did for the Babylonians in captivity, just like it did for you when you came to Christ. It was out of the wilderness. It was out of the darkness. It was out of the place that made no sense. And God was speaking tenderly to your heart so that you would flatten out that road, make the this this straight paths crooked by repenting. That's what all that means. And we live by that same gospel. And so... There are times that we feel like we're walking in the wilderness. We're on that road. We think we see the restaurant, but it's really hazy. It's got that mirage stuff happening. And we're really thirsty, and everything around us is hot and dry, and it is the wilderness. And there are times that we act as if we have to stay there as believers. You ever been there? The walls come crashing in. Everything around you feels like it's coming crashing in. The world starts to overwhelm you. It's always sadness. It's always sorrow because of what's going on in the world. And, and how, what, where is God? Why is he letting all of this stuff happen? Why is he letting all this stuff happen in our libraries for reading hour? Why is he letting all this happen in our laws? Where is God? You ever thought that way? We as believers know where God is. He's orchestrating every bit of it. Because he's the one in charge. He sets up kings and tears them down. Amen? So what is, instead of saying, where's God? The thing we ought to be asking is, where are we? There's a battle raging, and we've been called into it to be on our knees in prayer, and it's spiritual warfare. Where are we? Well, that's the power of the gospel. So when we're in that wilderness and forget that we've already been redeemed, just reach out and grab the cup of water. 
You've already been redeemed and forgiven of your sins. If the next battle you walk into, you die, so be it. You're with Jesus. So this highway that's been prepared for us, that we walk in as believers, we can still forget. And maybe it's not just being overwhelmed by the world, but maybe it's being overwhelmed by sin. There are things that we just can't seem to shake. We know we shouldn't want them, but we still go after them. We know we shouldn't say that or do that or look at that or whatever, but we still go after them. And we say, man, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm not, I'm walking the other direction from the restaurant. I, I, don't, even, I don't even sense God's presence. I, I don't sense anything. Well, what is the response for that when we are overwhelmed with our sin? What is God waiting on for us? What is God disciplining us for? It's to bring us to Repentance. Because repentance, the glass of water, the benefits of the gospel, the love of Jesus, the strength to walk in our lives is there for our taking because we are already redeemed. In the language of Romans 6, why are we back down in the dungeon given Satan who's locked up and bound and presenting our members to him? Go back up in the light where our king is, Jesus Christ. Present our members to him for godliness instead of the Satan for ungodliness. So this message is for us as well. You know, I read, actually I was reminded of a story this week of of a couple of people who were um, out, two brothers who were living on the Sea of Galilee, and one day they were going out to fish, and they saw this shiny object in the water. And they went down to see what the object was, and it ended up being part of a, a, a gold ring on the front of a boat that was, had been buried in sand for 2,000 years, and it was from Jesus' time. It was from the first century. And the only reason they could see that, the only reason that they found that, is because they had such a drought that the water levels were so low that it was exposed. That's what God will do to us sometimes. He puts us in a drought to test us and see where our trust is. And when we get down to the bottom of that, I'm talking to God's people here. When we get down to the bottom of that, because of the drought, because of the desert, then all of a sudden God lets us see in our own heart the things he's been after. And we have the ability to repent because we are living according to the gospel. It's the time that we take the water and we drink it. Look back to Isaiah 40. And the glory of Yahweh, verse 5, shall be revealed. Now, whenever God acts, his glory is revealed. When he acted in creation, his glory is revealed. Even even creation shouts his glory back to him. But if we're talking about this time of repentance that John the Baptist entered in, and remember, we're told that's that's the primary fulfillment of this, is John the Baptist. So if that's the time when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, it is his glory that is being revealed. Remember, that, that's the way passages like, like John chapter 1 tell us in the introduction. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the, his glory. Glory is as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's what I think the accepting of the sacrifice in in Isaiah 40 is talking about. From his fullness, the fullness of Christ, we have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 
And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus comes to reveal the Father. And we've already learned in Isaiah that the term Yahweh encompasses Christ in his ministry as well, both on earth and seated at the right hand of the Father. So it is Jesus who is revealing himself as Yahweh when he comes, lives, and dies and is raised again. But look back at your text. And all flesh shall see it together. Hmm. The last telephone pole, right? All flesh. When Christ returns again, remember, we're living between the advents, his first coming and his second coming. When he returns again, all flesh, everyone on earth will know that he has come and the glory of God is revealed. Those who are his, new heaven and new earth. Those who are not into the pit, separated from him forever. All, all flesh will see it. So in these five verses, we are seeing telephone pole one and three and five and last, setting up for us the whole next section of Isaiah. Not all the themes. I mean, some are mentioned here clearly. Some are alluded to. There are other themes that we will see later. But these 11 verses, actually the whole first chapter, but especially these first 11 verses that we've made it through half. Aren't you glad I only chose half today? I think that was a good call. All flesh shall see it. And how do we know it's true? How do we know we can count on this? This 7th, 8th century prophet this, this weird guy that comes out of the hills announcing, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus himself comes fully God, fully man, but he comes as a man. The first thing he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we know it's true? Look at the last phrase of verse 5. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. If there's any doubt in your mind that Jesus is in control of things, if there's any doubt in your mind that Jesus is not worth surrendering to this morning, walking away from your sin, repenting from it, and trusting in him, this is the creator of the universe who has spoken these promises. And that sets us up for verses 6 through 8, doesn't it? The word of the Lord has spoken, or the the mouth of the Lord has spoken at the the end of verse 8, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we have seen God's heart to speak to his people. We have also, and and in, in that message is the forgiveness of sin. The second voice brings us how that happens. The third voice is going to tell us next week that nothing can stand in his way because God is behind this. The zeal of the Lord will do it. We read in other passages. And the next section, verses 9 through 11, are going to teach us who this Jesus is. Going to teach us this Jesus, this God and Jesus of the strong arm to do what he wants, but also the strong arm who gathers in his children. It's a beautiful section of scripture. So we've heard the first two voices. So let's not live... If you're a believer here this morning, a glass of full ice water, is, or a non-believer, the glass of full ice water is sitting there before you. It is Christ and Christ alone that brings comfort in this life. No one else. There's no other way. There's no other way to get to the Father except through the Son, Jesus. That is before you today. Repent today and trust in him. But also, if you're here as a believer, the glass of water is ours. Don't act like it doesn't exist. I was reminded of a movie this week, um, a a movie 
a French film that's rather famous in France about a man who inherited land around Provence and the people in that land, in that city, did not want him to have that land. And so they thought, since there's not a lot of rain where this was, they thought they would just dam up this stream that fed his land. So they covered it over, they put concrete at the mouth of it, so the stream is not only blocked, but it's completely covered. He did not know it existed. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to get him to sell the land because to him it might be invaluable. And so the movie is about how they did this and how he um, responded And the sad part is he never learned that there was water right there to feed his land, that all it was was just blocked up by sinful people. If we're here in Christ today, let's not live that way. Let's not live as if that cup of cold ice water, Jesus Christ himself, has nothing to do with us. As if we get up every day and live our life under our terms, through our wisdom, for our glory, through our strength. Let's get up fully drinking and drowning in the cup of ice water that is Jesus Christ so that it is his glory revealed in us as he advances his kingdom. What a better way to get up every morning, amen? And all of this is because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for your word, for this encouragement, Lord, that you have given your people throughout all time that you are the God who brings comfort. There's no comfort to be found anywhere but through you and your son and the constant dependence upon your spirit. And so we, this morning, Father, are grateful for the encouragement. We ask you, Father, to teach us how to live for your glory through this time. For there are days that we get up and it's difficult because we forget. We forget that you have a plan, you have a purpose, And you are being glorified in everything. You are advancing your kingdom, summing all things up in Christ in such a way that you desire to use your people. And we are willing. So use us, Father. Accomplish your will through us so that you get the glory and we bask in your great love. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.